You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. And before we go any further, a a small warning uh, and an apology, a warm apology, if you will. The first 10 minutes, we had a slight sound problem, which meant that we were forced to fall back on the backup recording. Message to all podcasters, make sure you have a backup recorder. So it wasn't as good quality, but we've uh, Daryl has tickled it up for us and made it good quality. Um, but we will just have to put up with that for the first 10 minutes. Many apologies. The rest of the show after that first 10 irons out very nicely. And this is a really interesting interview with a very funny and very exciting comedian. Mr. Paul Chowdhury. Please welcome to the show, Paul Chowdhury. Thanks, Paul. Yes. Thanks for coming Big time, this one, man. <laughs> love our fans into that. Oh, yeah. 50 people. You, uh, you did, uh, for the sake of recording, Paul, this runs absolutely round. Is it? Yeah. Five, six hundred people at the start. Thank you very much. Let's let's start with uh, with your. Let's get straight into it. You walked on there and you did that thing that you are fond of doing, which is to walk on and point in the air. Yeah, I thought you know because it's such a big venue, and, uh, <laughs> we can't leave anyone out in this arena. <laughs> but that's 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 how you approach your gigs, isn't it? That's like a proper. You know, come on, big time, man! You know these people come out for a show. They wanted me talking shit and they just come to my house. <laughs> so I come out, you know, this like, this is, obviously this is a live podcast, but at the same time, these people have come out. This is, they, they're giving me a part of their lives tonight. They're giving me their time, and I appreciate that. I don't, I'm just saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're slightly in character there, aren't you? Slightly, slightly, you know. But I, to be honest with you, Steve, I don't even know who I am. Go on. Well, blow me out, that's quick. <laughs> 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 Come on, what do you mean who, by that? Who is Paul Chowdhury? This is the main question I think a lot of people want to know. And that's probably why I went to stand-up. I wanted to find out who I am. And I'm, I'm 18 years later, still don't know who I am. So <laughs> it's going to be quite an interesting journey. I think this is going to be less of a podcast, more of a therapy session. That's absolutely fine by so, me. A lot of people want to know who I am. So Josh Whittaker asked me, actually, so you're not going to get anything out of me. Who's that saying? Josh Whittaker. Yeah. He came up to me and said, uh, Stu's not going to... He, he said to you, didn't he? Oh, yeah. It's going to be the hardest podcast you've ever done. Yes. And he's right. Okay. It's going to be the hardest podcast you've ever done. And you. <laughs> yeah. So let's 
Before we get into who was called champion, because I, w- I want to come back to that, the last time we did together was in Top Secret. Yeah. Top Secret Comedy and Drury Lane, we were just talking about. And I remember, like, I had seen you live, I saw you in a gig in which was a dog shit gig. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that one? That was a shit song. <laughs> And, um, Christmas as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Christmas. Didn't make it any easier. It was horrible. And but you, you made it, you, it wasn't unplayable, but it was just dead. And you didn't give up it. Yes, that's right, yeah, yeah. You put real energy into that room. And I remember at the time, one of the things that really, like, your, your absolute disdain for the gig, for the audience, or the rest of it, you, you wielded that like some sort of sword. That it just slayed the monster of us. I hate those bastards. <laughs> I mean, and I don't like the audience. I try and be as authentic as possible and be real with them. And I think they appreciate that. I mean, if, if it's a shit audience, if you tell them it's a shit audience, they come like, yeah, we're a shit audience. <laughs> Sometimes it's best to be honest with people. Like, yeah. so, I mean, obviously, our stage persona is an extension of ourselves, if you're a normal character and all that, rather than a character act. So, I kind of, the way I approach audience is like talking to a group of mates, you know, so you walk out into a room and if you feel as if you're having an into a I play, I'm, I'm not boasting about this, but I play big, bigger venues than this. <laughs> uh, I, I don't want you to feel any less, but some of the venues I play, this room is the size of my dressing room. But I've got more people in it than we would. But what I'm trying to say is that You've got to go out there and be as honest with the audience as possible. Yes. And I think that can have, you know, adverse effects, because sometimes they don't appreciate that. Okay. But that night it went all right, didn't it? Yeah, because I remember one of the points at which it turned around, it was quite early on in the set, you'd done some good gear, and it had really bombed, everyone had been bombing, it's terrible gear. you done some good gear, and it bombed, and then you looked at them and said, this is the best gig I've ever done. And it was so deadpan. <laughs> it's such authority that you were in my life. And they really, it started to get them. I fucked the shit out of that crowd. <laughs> you know, so that was a good gig. I still remember that gig. <laughs> so where does that authority come from that you have on stage whereby you can tell an audience they're a shit crowd? But in a way that I couldn't. I couldn't tell. Well, I think you can. I think you... This is the thing, you need to start telling audiences that they're shit crowd to get them on side, and then you'll start to have better gigs. <laughs> um, what was the question again? Where does the authority come from? I'm, I think I'm naturally quite a shy person in real life, you know. So when people meet me, they're like, oh, you know, you know that's fine your stage, are you? And they always get that shit, what the fuck is your problem? You know, but, and on stage, I can talk to people, I can be slightly more personal with an audience than I can off stage. I don't say I just walk up to groups of strangers in the street and can't talk to them and say, on a one-to-one I find it more difficult. I think we're social misfits, Stu, comics. We're kind of loners and reclusives in real life. A lot of comics, I'm not saying all of them. But on stage we can kind of open up and be a different person. And it's a performance as well. But at the same time we're not actors, we're not reciting a script, we're not trying to be a character or something else, whereas what we're seeing is the dredge of entertainment with the lowest common denominator out there. Just a man with a microphone, you know? So when you started doing stand-up, the earliest bit of stand-up of yours I could find online was a gig at the comedy store, it might be the comedy store, where Russell Peters was compared. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, so te- televised gig, it was great fun watching gigs from a while back, because you just look at the audience and go, wow, look at how we all used to dress. But you... <laughs> You really had, you were very similar in your attack 
So who you are now? Have you have you always had when you started out? Did you have that same level of Confidence. Yeah, I mean that was like 2001, there, wasn't it? Quite yeah, I think so. Ago. Yeah, Russell came over, and he became, you know, he 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 went on to bigger things. I think after that, after <laughs> I worked with him, uh, uh, m- m- most of the people I work with, Stu, become big big names. You know, after after we do this podcast, this shit's going to blow up. <laughs> Episode 200, I think you're going to get probably one of the biggest comics in the country, <laughs> and that will make sense if you listen to episode 200. But um, I kind of went out, yeah. That I remember that that it was it was like an Asian comedy night for the BBC in 2001 when they had to hit an, a, a diversity quota, so they put us all on one show. <laughs> uh, me, Shappy, Russell Peters, they flew him over from Canada, and I headlined the thing, you know, and and my career pretty much went downhill after that. <laughs> but it, um, you know, I went out there. You kind of got to go out as my first TV set. Okay. I've been doing comedy for about two years, and you know, you're headlining a TV set on BBC Two. And I think kind of going out there, bang, bang. I kind of, I try and keep my act quite punchline heavy. You know, I'm not the kind of act that kind of go, go off on a flight of fancy and say, hey, guys, surreal, look at this, you know, unicorn, and it's hilarious. And it's this new wave of alternative comedy, which I quite appreciate, and I, can, I, I do that sometimes, but. I think people want to see jokes at the end of the day. You want to see jokes, innit? You're not going to get them tonight, but generally they want to see... <laughs> and then what I said before, well, you don't need to appeal to them. <laughs> oh, fuck this crowd. <laughs> fuck 750 people in there tonight. 250 people just walked in while we did the first 10 minutes. It was 500 earlier on, so we just want a, a typo. Speecho. So the... Uh the attack though the attack with which like the tone that you take with an audience were you doing that from gig zero from gig one no i think i mean gig one is always like a bit of a blur in it you kind of walk out there you you say your jokes you don't even kind of engage with the audience and uh, and just kind of say them it's all a bit of a blur i was quite deadpan and then i went out and started more confident you get the more you start to find your own voice i'm not as probably as performance driven as I was then now um, I kind of just stand there with a microphone now and uh, I don't kind of run around the stage as much as I did I think I leave it to the material for it to speak for itself something you did on stage at the top secret that the, the most recent gig we did together at one point I made notes about it at the time and you just cleared your throat on stage for about a minute and they were killing themselves I think that was because I had something in my throat. <laughs> it wasn't actually a piece of material. <laughs> no, no, that's what I mean. I don't think it was a bit. Yeah. It was just you just had such force of will. And <laughs> you were killing the gig. You were doing great. And then at one point, you, you just cleared your throat. Yeah, and then no, they, and you made them laugh by doing it. It's just the power I have with an audience is that even when I clear my throat, didn't work tonight, but I'm just saying... <laughs> but that, that's my... Do you see what I mean? Do you see the, 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 the element yeah. that I'm getting at? You've got such that kind of... that. It's almost like a brutality that you've got with an audience. I think I did clear my throat with some force that evening. <laughs> <laughs> it, was the, it, was, it was a serious throat problem at the time. <laughs> and that... I could have died on stage. And then I, could have, <laughs> I could have been a new Tommy Cooper. That would have made me. I don't know. That would have <laughs> changed. But, you know, if you want to clear your throat, you've got to clear your throat. Uh, I don't take a glass of water on stage. I think if you're doing a 20-minute set and you're walking up there with a, a drink, mate, you're on there for 20 minutes. 
You need to be hydrated in that 20-minute set. Fuck, put the drink down and tell a joke. That attitude that you have there, that, <laughs> that underpins so much of your material. It's like kind of disappointment in other people. So, well, I'm very disappointed in people. And that's generally my problem, I think. Uh, it, it, you say it's brutal, man. I'm just trying to be honest with you, you know. If there's a problem, just say it. I don't hold back in life. So what, what is the difference between, or what, what, what occurred to the shy you in 1999, whenever you started, and you were a shy person, and you wanted to do stand-up and tell the world how you saw it? What flipped a switch for you and made you do that? Well, I think I had that when I was at school, well, about the age of about five or six. So I had quite a troubled upbringing. Uh, lost a parent by the age of like five and I got a lot of attention at school, I remember at the time. And, uh, and then, you know, if the class would go quiet, they'd ask me a question and I'd say something, the whole the, the, the audience. The whole the class, audience, yeah, right. See, I would see the class as an audience in my, when I was at school. And then the whole, the whole class would erupt into laughter and the teacher would look at me and say, get out of the class. I thought, I've got a bit of a power over a, a crowd here. I can say something with complete deadpan rhythm and they'd find it funny. And, and that's why I thought, you know, I had a fascination in stand-up. I'd watch stand-up growing up from, you know, I don't want to say Bill Cosby, but, you know, he was one of them. <laughs> it was before we knew about the pills, obviously, at the time, and Sam Kinison, uh, so, you know, so many American stand-ups, a lot of cassettes at the time, Eddie Murphy and uh, all those guys. And then I just graduated. I thought, I want to try this. Mid-'98, I thought, I'm going to go out there, see what happens. I think a lot of us don't go into this thinking this is going to become a career. And I went out there, I just tried it, did five minutes. I remember that night, actually. Um, it was with Alfie Joey was comparing. It was this place off Regent Street. And I was closing. It's like uh, open mic nights. There's like 25, 30 acts on. You're going on at the end of the night. And at the end of the gig, these two guys held up the audience and, and mugged everyone in the room. Took their mobile phones, wallets. And, you know, it was pretty much punching people in the head. I think Alfie took a couple of shots to the head. And I sneaked out around the kitchen and went outside. I thought, you know, this is, this is for me. <laughs> How much? Is that true? It's a true story. This is yeah. your first gig. <laughs> My first ever gig. I thought, I'm a gangster now. <laughs> I, I could make this a thing in life. Did a, got a, did a bit of a split with those guys. Got some of the... <laughs> you know, the Oliver Twist of comedy. <laughs> you know, that, you the in. end bit didn't happen, but, you know... Okay. He's turned up and holy and, uh, shit! It was the, my first gig, yeah. So oh, that's floored me. <laughs> so you're and did you have that kind of attitude in that first gig? Do you remember what any of the jokes were that you'd written? They were kind of just conventional joke jokes, like joke, like you know, like simple stuff I'd written at home. Like five, it was five minutes was a long set. Mm -hmm. When you, when you start, you think, five, "How am I going to feel?" I think I did about, I think I did about four and a half. You know, and that's a long time to be on. And when you used to hear that, and back in the day, think because the club sets are like twenty minute sets, and you think, how does this got twenty minutes? You got to come up with twenty minutes of material, and then some clubs would write in timeout extended set, which was like twenty five minutes. How does twenty five minutes? Yeah, right. Where does he get all this material from? And then when I and my last tour, I was doing two and a half hours. That was my. I do. I do an hour in the first half, a break, and then do about an hour and ten, an hour and twenty sometimes. And, and that was a long time to be on stage. Yeah. Um, so so long, in fact, it gave me problems. Go on. Because I'd stand on stage for so long uh, without, without even moving. 
um, that there was no blood circulation <laughs> in the lower half of my body. You know, I wouldn't get you know hard on or anything. Not on stage, <laughs> but and I, I remember I started thinking, this is a bit weird, man. You know, the shit started hurting down there. You know what I mean? You, you know, you ever feel that when your balls get really heavy when you've been standing for so long? <laughs> the nutsack gets really heavy and shit. And I, and I thought this is weird. You know, when the balls get well, basically, the balls got really heavy, and then I went to the doctor, and I said, I said the balls are feeling really heavy. You know, normally I've got big balls, but the balls got even bigger. And then they scanned my balls, and this, I basically had a varicose vein, and they said, you need to get the blood circulation moved. Because I wasn't banging many women around that time as well, because uh, I was on, on tour. And that should mean I was banging more women, but I wasn't getting shit, mate. And it turned out, because I wasn't moving, they said, you need to start doing exercises. <laughs> so, so in between the two halves, I'd have to like do crutches and shit, like crouching tiger. I've got dragon. no idea how much, if any, of this is. This real. is all true. <laughs> is, I'll give you my doctor's number. I don't know if we should leave it in the podcast because uh, I want women to listen to this, and I don't want this to put them off. <laughs> so, Jesus Christ, where are we? <laughs> Let's come back to you. You said you had a troubled childhood. Were you getting in trouble? Yeah, it's kind of like I saw a lot of, I saw a lot of shit growing up, Stu. A lot of shit, man. Can you yeah. tell me what you mean without turning it into material? <laughs> this is all. I haven't made up anything. The only bit I've made up so far is me splitting the money with the two muggers. <laughs> the rest of it is completely true. So this is the thing I'm trying to be real with you, but people think I'm. I don't know if it's my delivery or the style I have. But this is all real. Oh, the, the massive unlikeliness of the things you've been That's describing not, so far. <laughs> to be fair, in my defence. <laughs> I knew a white man would say this to me, man. But, but We'll get onto the racial <laughs> stuff in a bit. I thought so. I thought yeah. I'd beat you to it, you know. But um, So were you get? I'm asking know, you about your up, childhood. I grew up in this... I was born in 1974. And England was a very different place in 74. It was a bit like this set, and I'm not sure if we should address the set because this is a podcast. But it was it was a racially tense time. My dad came here in 1964, and, and he used to live in Wilston Green. Uh, and when he was trying to get a job or accommodation, it was so no blacks, no Irish, no dogs, and those were the. T- so we kind of and I was I was born in this country. My brother and sister were born in India. And they came, my sister came, they came when I was about five or six. They'd never seen anyone but Indians before, so it must have been a massive clash to them. So I was born in 74, around the time with the N, it was, this was skinhead days. Yeah. The red DMs and the braces. And, you'd have, you know, people would go packy bashing. I lost a lot of mates. I lost, you know, people who got, got murdered. I, I, took a, I took a beating. My dad got uh, attacked once, took a knife to the face, 50 stitches, saved his brother's lives in a racial attack. I was left for dead once. So racism was the thing I grew up to. And it was a normal thing, everyday life. You, the word packy was used almost as a punchline in sitcoms in those days. And it was seen as acceptable. And now, all of a sudden, it's, it's kind of changed where people can't say it, but people think it now. So it's, gone, it's slightly more, it's an undertone current to it. So people say, I don't address it. Politicians don't address it. And, and then, you know, Brexit happens. And I think that's because a lot of politicians didn't address it. You get people like Nigel Farage addressing it head on. I don't think he's right about it. I don't think Donald Trump's right about the way they're doing it. But you're bringing out a lot of the tension. So when you keep it simmering under and people like me address it and, uh, and people get very tense with it. 
because yeah. it's something we shouldn't be discussing. But I think if we discuss it, because I think all human beings are the same, and if we discuss it and take the piss out of differences, we can relate to each other on all our similarities. So this is Paul. And remember, if you would like to hear more of the live Soho podcast, if you'd like to attend one, then on the 8th of May, I'm talking to Jeremy Hardy. I remember listening to Jeremy Hardy speaks to the nation literally 20 years ago. He's so, so funny. Bits of that. You know, sometimes there's a comic whose whose whole way of speaking, their whole approach to the world is written into your own language. I remember he had a an episode that was called How to Stay Alive for as Long as You Possibly Can. And part of the introduction was, uh, I shall divide this into several segments stopping other people from killing you and clinging on to the will to live i just think he's wonderful so please do come along and see him live that's the 8th of may and the fabulous joe brand is on the 5th of june at soho theater so go to sohotheater.com to find your tickets enter the code vera all capitals v-e-r-a and you will receive a special discount for listening to the show um thank you to paul for this episode we'll get back to him shortly i'm enjoying this enormously he's um he is a it's really interesting talking to someone who as we will go on to discuss has a a ticket buying profile as he puts it that is in advance of his tv profile and it's really interesting hearing about the decisions that someone makes based on that and whether that does affect the way that he steers his career um also there will be some interesting accent work so we'll get onto that shortly um a little plug now this isn't a paid uh, piece of advertising this is just to support uh, a rather excellent venture i was sent by way of a donation to this podcast rather than a cash donation i was sent by paul savage brilliant comedian and also the guy that's helped me put on a few of the live shows around the wolverhampton area um he sent me instead of a, a cash donation he sent me some gin that he'd made himself i don't even know how you go about making gin but i particularly recommend the plum and the damson which i, I very much enjoyed so thank you to paul and by way of uh, thanks for his thanks um i'm very happy to push you towards gin sauvage.co.uk sauvage of course is how you'd imagine it spelled g-i-n for gin s-a-u-v-a-g-e gin sauvage.co.uk and uh, i highly recommend the plum and the damson now i'm going to be completely straight with you i'm slightly inebriated i've just done a tour show in whelan's in dublin what is a whelan's well i found out this evening it's a wonderful room with a brilliant kind of faded glamour and some lovely red curtains and it's had fantastic it's one of those places where you're backstage and there is not only the tour posters also the graffiti of numerous famous and exciting people so um thank you to everyone that came to the whelan show i'll chat to you slightly more about that in the uh, the end of this show i just wanted to read out a little bit of correspondence um uh, this is from michael i just listened to gary delaney's dissection of his one-liners awesome i'm a scottish guy now living in melbourne so hoping to get along to a live recording in april during the festival also going to check out your show i'm drunk on red wine from michael brackets are kisses inappropriate well michael they're not inappropriate but i'm uh, i'm fine for kisses just now thank you um and thanks for being drunk on red wine as i am very slightly um but thank you come along to melbourne i've not really been pushing the melbourne shows on this podcast but i do hope you'll all come along anyone that's in or near the melbourne international comedy festival i'm going to be there from the middle of march to the middle of april for that is when it happens and i will be taking the boutros on his first ever plane ride which will last something like 26 hours two planes two takeoffs two landings no mercy <laughs> so uh that's it. that's a little plug for the melbourne show thank you to michael thanks to joe who said raging i can't make it to the whelan's gig in dublin here's the ticket price anyway now that is a fan 
Thank you, Joe. And he goes on to say, love the podcast. As a comedy nerd, it has inspired me to dot, 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 not become a comedian and leave it to the professionals. More of this sort of thing. And also more of the other sort of thing. Cheers, Joe. Thank you. Leighton says, now, it is a long email. I shall, uh, I shall snip it to bits. Mark Forward's episode was brilliant, he says. His remarks about and views on facing a room full of silence were just utterly revelatory. I'm a muggle, not a comedian, says Leighton. But even so, the perceptivity... I think you mean perception, but maybe that is a word too, that he showed by offering such an obvious insight left me slack-jawed. That is why you're trusted when you present someone new to my lug holes. Thank you, Leighton, for picking up on... It's not a bugbear of mine, but I am aware that some of you choose to only listen to the episodes of people you know, and some of you, some of you, Josh Widdicombe, choose to only listen to British comedians. It's just naked racism, isn't it? But um, uh, thank you. I am glad to think that Leighton is trusting me that anyone that is on this show is someone I think is deserving of your attention. So thank you, everyone else that also got in touch about the Mark Forward episode. And Mark has been, uh, Mark on Twitter is at Mark Forward, but with an extra D at the end, Mark Forward to do. And uh, he's been very conscientiously replying to everybody's tweets. So everyone that said, uh, hey, Mark, loved your episode of ComCom, uh, he's uh, tweeting back and being very polite. What a nice boy. What a lovely Canadian boy. So episode 200 is next week. If you're in the Facebook group, you already know who this is going to be. If you're not in the Facebook group, keep your ears peeled. And your eyes open. And uh, and you will find out very soon. This is going to, hopefully, if we get all the editing and the logging done in time, uh, then this episode will go out with no break in performance. And then after episode 200, I've got one left in the can. I've got some interesting people lined up, some very interesting people. If you're at the Manchester show, that guy's up for it. So uh, that'll, be, uh, that'll be interesting. Um, I mean, that'll be wonderful. I can't wait. I've also, I'm so busy. I'm going to Australia. I'm going to do a couple of live podcasts in Australia. Please come to those. Those are all findable from the, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival website. But I also might take a little break. Should I take a break or should I not take a break? I mean, I really, there's a lot on. I'm touring. I've not been a very good dad. I'll talk to you in the, in the waffle about, I don't mean I've been a bad dad. I'm not some kind of deadbeat, guys. Um, but I've not been home much in the last two weeks. And uh, I think I'd like to spend some time with the boy. So um, I might take a little bit of time off. Oh, no, that doesn't even sound right coming out of my mouth. No, no, I'll just bash on. So let's get back to Paul. If you've donated, thank you for donating. Lots of you did after I uh, mentioned it in a slightly strangled fashion in the Phil Wang episode. Thank you to everybody that has donated recently. Um, I would like to uh, give my enormous appreciation, as I have done. Everyone that uh, everyone that donates gets a personal email from me that is not simply a cut and paste. I thank you. I really put a bit of work into it. This red wine really is coursing through my veins at two a mere two glasses but i haven't eaten much so my point is thank you for listening and uh, thank you for donating those of you that have if you can donate to the show then you support the people you pay for it on behalf of the people who can't donate to the show as you well know the tour is coming to exeter bath harrogate birmingham hull shrewsbury bristol glasgow newcastle darlington and leeds and Melbourne, and then a load of other places. So please go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour if you would like to find out more about where you can come and see me somewhere near you. If I am near you, and if I'm not near you, then please tweet and email me and get all angry at me and complain that I'm not coming to Aberdeen. Sorry. I was in Glasgow for the stand last weekend. Oh, wonderful. Hoping some of those guys come along to the Glasgow show. And uh, let's get back to the wonderful Mr. Paul Chowdhury. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In the material of yours that I've heard, and certainly from both of your DVDs and other of your Apollo sets, um, the material of yours that I've seen, I've never heard you talk in detail about your personal experience you're very punchline driven you talk about like the wider ideals you talk about the wider concepts of racism and the differences between bengalis and gujaratis and punjabis that's a a lot of material which we'll get into in a bit but um like i I noticed there was like one line where almost like as a bridge in between two other gags you said so i got chased when i was a kid i got chased down the street by some skinheads and that's as much of that story as I've, as I've heard, certainly what you've said there is like, I would, wouldn't have got any of that from your material. Given that you have a vehicle to talk about your life experience, is that a deliberate choice to not go into the specifics? I have done those routines, actually. Uh, I've done the stuff I just talked about in a 2007 show I did in Edinburgh. And I spoke about uh, my near-death experiences, my experience with my dad who survived. And I did it and it kind of, kind of all tied back into each other. But I've never done it on the two DVDs. But I have done it actually in one-man shows, and I've done it at this venue. Um, but it depends what kinds of shows you've seen of mine. So I say with live at the Apollo or the stuff you see on TV, I think going into longer because they are quite long routines. Sure. And and doing stuff like that on TV, I think it's. I think getting to a punchline quicker and trying to break down certain barriers is easier to do on a on a ten-minute TV set. Then, then if you do come and see me, and also the DVDs have been cut down, mm-hmm. so the DVDs are like an hour and a half, and you, you do sometimes do two hours. And if you've got a routine which is a lot longer and that goes deeper into those, which bits aren't necessarily as punchline heavy, sure. because you've got to get you've got to get a little bit serious in those bits just to get the points across. Otherwise, Absolutely. they will think I'm taking the piss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they'll just so, think. So, what was what was the reaction critically in 2007 to to that show? It was good. I mean. Um, some people liked it, some be- uh, uh, you know, and some people would appreciate me bringing those bits up. But then, you know, there were two elements of the show because I remember at that time, uh, I can't even remember the show, the show I'd talk about that thing about my dad and the thing about um, Panorama wanted me to play in a reconstruction of the 7-7 seven, seven bombings. They wanted to play one of the bombers. So stuff like that. You know, okay. I got a call back in 2002 when Panorama did a reconstruction for the BBC. Okay. Because I apparently resembled one of the bombers. <laughs> and uh, I talk about that in it. 
uh, and I said, look, I can't even remember what the routine was. I'm not going to do the routine now, but it was like people think East characters in EastEnders are real in the human the street. So I said no to it. Yeah, on right. That basis. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a wise you decision. There's that geezer. There's that terrorist. And I was the guy that played the terrorist. Bollocks, my head, but I can't. You know, it was just, yeah, yeah. It was. Um, and then recently, I had that whole thing with. With uh, with uh, Crime Watch, Crime Watch, yeah. When I was getting tweeted, which I'm going to put into the next tour about how I resembled one of the terrorists in Crime Watch, and then I started getting tweeted. I think the BBC got tweeted, um, and I said, "Look, I told people to stop tweeting me because I look nothing like these terrorists." And it turns out I looked exactly like the terrorist, <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't because of the beard or any Asian guy with a beard. Yeah, know. right. So do you take kind of delight in accusing white audience members of racism because like you get to process the the racism inflicted upon you in your youth in in a in a fun way in a way in which you're in control because you've got well, you know you're really good at impressions you're really good at voices and accents you do lovely stuff with people with white men in the audience calling them Dave implying they've been racist might have been his name flat, <laughs> flatly accusing them of being racist <laughs> and you must take real kind of glee from doing that yeah, I like to play with the concept of it, really. Um, obviously, I think when a, if, a, if a white crowd came to see me on tour, they're probably not going to be racist, just by the nature of who I am. And then for people to say, I'm a certain racist, I'm probably not going to be a racist to go around uh, and be the kind of act that I am and get such a diverse audience. I'm quite lucky, in fact, to get such a diverse audience turning up to my shows, English people, Indian people. I mean, it's such a mix. Yeah. I'm not going to say, you know, black, white, yellow people, because that's racist. But I'm just saying so many different types of people come and see me, which is it, I try and be as, as inclusive rather than... When I was growing up, I used to watch stuff like Bernard Manning on TV, and they'd point out the one Asian guy, and, oh, we've got a fucking pucky in tonight, and the audience would piss themselves. I think, you know, I would think, imagine me walking into that audience and sitting there trying to watch this Bernard Manning show. I'd get eight in a life. And I'd have to laugh along with it because that's what I grew up to. If someone did call, and nowadays, sometimes I go into a dress room and you'd get certain acts or even bookers use the word packy around you. And then I'd kind of have to pretend to laugh along with that and say, no, it's ironic. Right. It's a bit of ironic race. It's a bit of irony, mate. You know, they think, I'm supposed, but they'd never do it when the black act is around. I think Indian people, the racism, they're not, they don't tackle it head on. We're not doing what, say, the black circuit did. And, and people say there's an Asian circuit. There is no Asian circuit. There's a few Asian acts now. When I started 18 years ago, they were hard. You could count them on one hand. And that show we were talking about in 2001, I'd say there was a black circuit. I'd say a circuit is a regular gig. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, you go and do, I, I did a lot of stuff on the black circuit. And that circuit was really punchline heavy. If you do remember stuff like Def Comedy Jam, it's very bombastic. You come out, bang, 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 and you get off. So that was a certain style I developed because I'd play that circuit. I'd do gigs for Asian crowds. I'd do gigs for the mainstream circuit, you know, the clubs. It's considered the mainstream circuit. I don't want to say white circuit because <laughs> no one's really excluded from any of these circuits, but they were labeled as circuits, but then different material would work. So when I did, say, stuff on the black scene it would be very hip-hop, kind of. The delivery would be, you know, I had stuff with Kevin Hart at Brookston Academy before anyone knew who he was. So they'd bring people over from America and we'd be the support acts and we'd go out and bang, bang, and just smack out the routines. And then you'd get comics from the mainstream circuit going on there doing one-liners or, or puns and they'd just die on their ass. 
but then I'd have to adapt my act for the different crowds. Okay. So you'd, you'd have material that works in front of that audience. And then I'd notice when I started doing one-man shows, all these different types of audiences turned up to my show. So I kind of brought them all together. And then all the material tends to work. When you get acts from the mainstream circuit, they didn't tend to cross over with those circuits. Certain acts would, who were very, who were very performance-driven. Okay, like who, which kind of people were the kind of crossover? Say Terry Alderton, for instance. Yeah, okay. You know, like he was so, you know, when he was on the circuit when I started like, 18 years ago, you know, when he was Perrier nominated or someone, he was, you know, like, or, or Lee Evans or someone, he was so kind of out there. And, but then you'd get a deadpan act and it just wouldn't work in front of that audience. You know, I did stuff in L.A., in America, on Hollywood, and, and, uh, and it was a similar style. And then I'd do stuff at the Laugh Factory on a normal night and and you could kind of just lay back, okay, because it's co- the comedy scene is is very new in front of certain audiences. You know, certain people that do come and see me have never seen stand up before, and it's the fir- and and they you know they they compare me to someone like you know say Russell or someone like that, and I'm like you need to watch more comedy to educate yourself. There's, the world of comedy has been going for years, and there's so many acts out there, even on the main circuit that you need to educate yourself to see. I'm not saying that's what my crowd is. I'm saying there's certain people that would come out for the first time when you say someone like Stuart Lee, his crowds have been watching comedy for years. So you were talking before in the, in the dressing room, we were talking about the difference between your ticket buying profile, your ticket selling profile and your TV profile. Where, what, what were we going to say about know, I'd that? Say, I'm, uh, I'd say my, yeah, my TV profile doesn't dictate the amount of people that turn up to see me. It's quite organic. A lot of people come and see me. I'm not saying tonight, but a lot of people come and... <laughs> come and see me <laughs> it sounds like i'm boasting about the, the no 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 recording. but it's true you've got i mean yeah. i like in in terms of your tv profile it's i mean is it kind of it's almost surprising that you've got two yeah br- you know really good well-selling dvds I, behind you i mean i i on my last tour i did around a hundred thousand tickets that's a lot of tickets so, for yeah. someone that isn't like a regular on mock the week and you know on that I've, kind of i've never even done mock the week so you know i've done like two apollos and a lot of stuff um, yeah, say two Apollos. That's all I've done, really. Uh, hosted Stand Up for the Week. This was a few years ago. Uh, four Channel Four comedy galas, bits and pieces. You know, um, Taskmaster was the last one. But um, I'd say a lot of people watch me online. You're, so, I mean, there's an yeah. incredible number of hits on yeah. the. I mean, how do you, I did wonder watching your DVDs online as I did without paying yeah. for them. Well, I mean, know, like you're that, like my audience. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know. So, is that to what extent is that kind of does that work in your favour that y- these people then buy tickets for you, or would you rather YouTube fucked off and you sold the DVDs? Well, you know, you can't really control what happens on YouTube when people start stick your stuff up nowadays. You can't really get it taken. It's hard to get stuff taken down, so you just. I don't even know half the stuff that's up there. But a lot of stuff, like when I did my last tour, I did a week at um, Leicester Square Theatre, which all sold out. Then I did a night at the Apollo. And this was on the back of, say, you know, like a a 99-date tour. So it was like around 100 dates. And I had one night at the Apollo, which sold out in in like a a few days, actually. Then they put a second night on, and then that sold out. And then they put a third night on, and then that sold out. And this was three nights. And this was after I've already done, say, 80,000 seats, which was quite... And the agencies were like, we, we didn't expect this to happen. And they tried to get a fourth night, and it was booked out because Live at the Apollo was being booked. And I did a fourth at Brixton Academy. It was weird because my first DVD I did at the Apollo, and I, did, I sold that room out 
before I did Live at the Apollo. Okay. And then the next night, I did Live at the Apollo for the BBC. No way, having just done having your just own done show own to a show. full room. Yeah. And, and, it was, and that was, I was much more relaxed for that gig because that's quite a nerve-wracking gig to do. But it was the DVD I was nervous for because that's when my audience turned up and I thought I couldn't get, you know, sell out this room and I sold out before doing Live at the Apollo. So, but I also tried to build up a live audience because when I was doing the club circuit, you were doing Jonglers and the Comedy Store and stuff. You could only do 20 minutes and you couldn't experiment because these jokes would pay your bills. So you can't go out and try a new bit. So I'd start booking like little rooms and try and get audiences to turn up. I remember I did two nights at the Leicester Square Theatre, and there was a risk, because you'd lose quite a few grand if no one turned up. And it was a split involved versus a guarantee. So when you do a room, you do a split versus a guarantee. So if you don't get the people in, you've got to then pay the venue. And it was either that or Edinburgh. And um, I thought, I'll take this risk, and I sold out two nights there. And this was off the back of Facebook at the time. Right, okay. So, and then I started building up this live following and it's a lot of it is word of mouth. And then I say on the last tour, I did a lot of stuff online. When I started, this was about two years ago, I started getting trolled a lot, you know, like on Facebook. Sure. Just people just calling you a prick and I'm going to fucking bust you up, bruv, innit? All this shit would happen and I'd expose the trolls. How so, do you mean expose them? So I'd, I'd, I'd basically talk about the, I, the way I treat people online is, is basically, you know, people take it very personally. I think it's an extension of ourselves. Our on-stage persona is what they want to see online. So if you put a tweet up or a joke up on Facebook and people say, shit, this, you're not even funny, mate. It's not, it's just a tweet or a joke, but they think we're actually on stage or this is just an extension of us. So they're, all right, fair enough. If you go by the rule, I'm going to go by the same rules. It is an extension of ourselves. So I then look at the person as I would in an audience. Okay, gotcha. And I'd film the profile and rip the guy in your arsehole and upload it onto Facebook. And, That's uh, a great idea. <laughs> yeah, I did. And I must have done about 10 million views on that. So on, on that. And then people would come to the tour shows and heckle me thinking, this is just some roast battle. Oh, my God. So okay. that, and then that, I'd say that got around 10 million on Facebook. And I'd have to stop because, you know, it's getting quite dangerous. People had to shut down their Facebook accounts. I shut people down. They'd basically... Because you were publicly going, yeah. this is, this yeah. is the account. Like they call they you, this. you're gay, bruv. You're de- you know, and I'd look at their profile and break down their profiles and talk about them. Bruv, can you take it down? I've got my family on Facebook, innit? I'm like, well, I've got my family on Facebook as well, mate. <laughs> so people would just disappear off the face of the earth. Okay. Um, That's re- I mean, that is a smart idea. You must have been... I mean, you know, d- doing around 10 million, it was more than a TV show would get. Probably yeah. A lot more. And, and that just basically. And did you invent that? Because that sounds like the sort of shit that people come up with who then become Russell Peters. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, I kind of invented it, yeah. I don't think. I can't. People started doing it. They have started doing it over the past. You know, I've, I've said people probably have started doing it. But. And people have done it on Twitter where, say, Frankie Boyle would tweet someone and call them a cunt. But this was actually videoing the profile and my voice. Talking over, over the video. Talking over them. And just destroying the bastard. You know, fucking that guy up proper. And is, and is that, again, is, that, is there some element of that whereby you are someone who was abused as a younger person? I was never abused. Racially no, abused no, as a oh, younger yeah. person. Do you know, and, and whereby you get to seize, you get to take back the power. Yeah, there weren't really racist, like, I'd say, trolls. There were more, but... It, it, I, I'd say it was more my on stage ripping people apart 
taken onto a different forum like Facebook. But there's got to be a, there's got to be some satisfaction for your offstage self, has there? In terms of the even if it isn't racial abuse, they're still they're challenging your status, they're challenging yeah. your authority, and you get to win this time. Yeah, and sometimes they'd come back and make a video themselves, which is <laughs> just dig themselves a deeper shit pit. You know, I'd destroy them even harder after that. And then some people would say take down the, you know, some some videos I had to take down. Some would get taken down because they didn't report it because now they're the victim. And then uh, it got to a point where uh, oh, I get death threats. There was a point, even when my friend was worried for me, said you need to stop doing this. this is dangerous. You know, people would basically threaten me. Uh, police turned up. They try and trace some of the accounts who then sent serious death threats. But you know, you know this is. Ten million views, man. Yeah, <laughs> you know, hundred thousand seats, man. I, you know, it, it, I could buy a new watch. <laughs> so, so let's let's talk about then about the the makeup of your audience, the profile of your audience, because you you got such a wealth of racial material, and you've got such a wealth of. Uh, like I'm, I found myself watching your video Googling all of the Punjabi swear words The Gujarati swear words you're doing Trying to work out the spelling and stuff And uh, you have a means of contacting an audience That I absolutely don't have as a, as a, as a white actor well, You're probably a racist then Because you should be able to contact that audience mate But you've got to I, I believe I can play to that audience But what uh, I can't do is make the specific observations about We need to talk <laughs> because my friend Paul said <laughs> but it's interesting you say that because I get that kind of feedback from a lot of my fans say English fans that don't and then they start learning Punjabi words and I said not all my material is is racially driven you know like my first DVD what's happening white people the title <laughs> <laughs> there was a racial element perhaps but it wasn't entirely based <laughs> But it, but it is even, even if that isn't all of the material It is something It's it's like an undercurrent of live show To which you can always go back Bit yeah. of Because your material is very modular I feel like you could do a lot of your material in any order It's like yeah. that bit quickly Punch, punch, punch Punch, punch, punch And then you can always fall back on Or not even fall back You can quite deliberately The next move is Then go into a racial something yeah. or, or an audience A piece of crowd work That is often very racially driven Yeah, I mean it's such a diverse audience and, and a lot of the themes in that DVD I'm not saying because it was called What's Happening White People and people say where did that title come from how uh, come mate why can't oh, that's racist he can't say what's happening I can't go up and say what's happening black people you know they'd say oh, that, that's the equivalent of sure. the N word or P word or they can't. but that wasn't what I was trying to do here you know I, that kind of punch that came about when I used to do the clubs and as you know, the mainstream circuit was predominantly a white audience. Yeah. And I was probably the only non-white person in the room 15 years ago. And I'd walk out and say, what's happening, white people? And that's where it came about. So, and I remember the agent at the time said, you need to do this. Addison Cresswell uh, was my agent, who's now no longer with us, rest in peace. But he was like, yeah, that's it, that's it, mate. That's what you need to do. What's happening, white people? And that really caught the attention of the audience and the industry. And that was what, you know... Kind of that was what was that kind of was my breakthrough, I say, as a as an act. Does that did that then lead to a sort of a perceived responsibility by the left wing press that you were then going to go into some really deep material about? Yeah, race? I mean, yeah, I mean, you get some uh, left, and I'd say I'm probably more to the left than I am to the right, but they probably perceive me as quite right wing when I'm a lot further to the left 
because of what I've been through and the viewpoints I have now on society. But I, what I was trying to do was break it. But they, a lot of them think, oh, we, we can't really address this, can you? Uh, how do you? They want to get offended on other people's behalf. I've never had an Asian person come up to me and said, you're racist. I've, I've sometimes had these left-wing critics say, oh, he's a racist. You can't even address these issues. Please, let's keep it out of the carpet. He's a racist, sexist, homophobe, and uh, we, we shouldn't be addressing this. I was sat in a predominantly Asian audience, uh, and I felt rather uncomfortable, but I won't put that in the review. So, but they'll see me as the problem. When, if we sat down and we had a discussion on race or politics or sexuality, I think we'd probably have similar viewpoints but, on it. But isn't your show an opportunity for you to have that discussion? That, that's kind of what I'm doing, I think, is, is being inclusive. I'm not trying to exclude you know, different genders or sexuality in the audience. I'm not trying to separate or divide. It's not divide, conquer and rule isn't what I'm trying to do. But I, I think for as much as it's really, I mean, it's really fun, it's really invigorating to watch a lot of your racial stuff. As a yeah. white person watching it, I can sort of feel like I'm being given permission to laugh at things because I know that you're not racist or I kind of, I don't, I don't sense any racism in what yeah. you're doing, what you're saying. So there's, you know, I, I experience a, a kind of a slightly naughty type of a laugh. There was a bit, I was looking up my notes, you know what I said before, I was laughing at one of the things, that, a note you'd made. You do an accent of someone talking about their, of a black guy talking about uh, his friend being eaten by a hippo. Oh yeah, and and you do it for ages of this guy trying yeah. to explain. No, he finished. He dead. He finished. <laughs> like, and you do it over and over do again. Do the accent again, mate. I'm not going to do it again, and I'm not going to. I may take it out of the show because I'm, I'm edgy about it, you know. But I'm doing an impression of your material, so I'm I'm in the clear. Well, don't I don't. Feel, I'm not. I, I didn't see. I don't remember that routine. <laughs> that uh, bit is so funny, and watching it, it's like watching it as a white person. I'm aware that, like, if I didn't like you as a comic, it, I could, or I didn't buy into you as a comic, yeah. I could feel like, I don't know if I'm allowed to laugh at this, or I might be oversensitive well, about I'm not it. Even, see, I'm not black, and I'm doing a, an impression of a black South African running away from a hippo. So, you know, people will say, oh, yeah, he shouldn't be doing that accent, should he? But I think a lot of my material is character-driven, and me crossing over different accents isn't me being racist, it's me acting out the routines. I want to be the person and bring this thing to life. I'm not going to say... And then the black guy said, the hippo's chasing me, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, and I ran away. It does, I, I, I want to sell this and perform this like it's the actual, sure. Or if it's Dave walking down, my, I'll fucking do Dave. Because <laughs> if I'm talking about a guy called Dave who spoke like that, I'm not saying all white people speak like that. I mean, you often are saying all white people speak like that. Well, the other one earlier on was the uh, I'm Rather Uncomfortable. Which is a new one I've just developed for this podcast. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I did make a note at one point, wow, you're doing a Chinese accent. <laughs> um, I'd say, you know, like, for instance, you know, like the strong accents I do aren't to, to be, say, racist. It's like... A friend of mine came up to me recently and said his neighbor had an argument with his next door neighbor and the neighbor was going, you fucking come to my... T-. He was just going ape shit. And you bastard? And he just remembered me saying bastard on stage and pissed himself laughing. <laughs> and then the white guy started laughing and the Indian guy saying, this is why he just started laughing. Why are you fucking laughing at me, bastard? And, and he, he couldn't continue the argument because he just reminded him of my routine of, you bastard, shut up. And it just, the argument ended at that point. 
So I actually brought people together. <laughs> so, my, my so okay. Well, I want to I want to challenge one element of 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 this this general subject matter, which is that on on the racial stuff. As far as I understand it, how racism works is you can only really be racist racist if yeah. you're white because it's about entrenched social systems. Yeah. So there is an issue that I had with a joke you did about homophobia. Yeah. Whereby you said to someone in the audience, and, and this is an interesting in, in the difference of the type of audiences. I saw the Apollo gig first. So on the Apollo gig, you go, who here thinks that gay marriage is a good thing? And there's a huge cheer and you go, and who's against gay marriage? And there's no reaction, and that gets a laugh. Because, yeah. And that becomes the joke of that bit. On the DVD, who here believes in gay marriage? Mm. Big cheer. Who here is against gay marriage? Huge cheer. Mm. And I felt like having raised the specter of people being against gay marriage, which, I mean, as a PC liberal, yeah. you know, I'm completely pro-gay marriage and I, I'm aghast that anyone might not be. Yeah. Um, you, you then you didn't do with any material, you didn't do anything that expressed your point of view on it. And I wonder whether that, like you got laughs at, but you've got, yeah. a, you've got a, good, a good joke about gay arranged marriage. It's a good joke, but it doesn't take a standpoint. And I was I interested, I, like, given the opportunity, you're talking to 100,000 yeah. people. If you do feel personally pro-gay marriage, mm. can't that be the joke? Or, or is there some element of, like, you don't want to alienate some of your audience? No, I, think, I remember that night, actually, and there was a guy in the front, and I said, do you believe in gay marriage? He said, no. And I said, why not? He said, it doesn't feel natural. Yeah. I remember that. And I went into a bit about him um, working out how he discovered it didn't feel natural. Yeah. Yeah, and it was yeah. it was a funny bit, but it was like the means by which you were slamming someone for being for, for being homophobic. The means by which you were attacking someone for being homophobic was to do a, basically an act out that said, "Well, you probably feel like that because you've been fucked in the ass." Do you <laughs> mean? And it's like I just wondered about the the politics of well, that. How would he know it didn't feel natural? Was my argument on that? I point. understood the joke, and it was really funny, and it was a good improvisation, and you know he really set himself up yeah. to fall there, and you seized on it. But at the same time, I didn't feel like there was prepared material. I just wondered. It seemed like, at, at best, it seemed like a missed opportunity to I remember that confront the prejudices yeah, of a large number of people in I'd your audience. I'd say with um, a non-white audience, homophobia is quite rife. You know, it's not acceptable and it's not seen as normal, but a lot of people don't address that. And I'd say on the Apollo night, the TV show, it was a predominantly English audience and no one cheered, and probably not on a TV recording. Sure. But on my recording, they did cheer. And then I went into the whole thing about Shuri and Dewani. I do remember that routine. Mm -hmm. And it was, a, there was a court case. A girl got murdered in South Africa and it turned out he was gay. So I did the whole bit about that there. But there's only, I think, you know, I have gone into that with that crowd. I don't know if I did enough for you that night, but... Uh, I thought I did quite a bit of stuff on that. But you see what I mean? The difference between doing a bit of stuff on it and flatly saying, I disagree with a large number of people in the audience. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me... Do you know what I mean? If you do, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I don't know where you oh, stand yeah, on gay I'm, marriage. That's almost my point. I don't know where you stand on gay marriage and having raised that... You still don't know where I stand with it? Even well, yeah. I, I don't So think when I did the routine about I disagree with gay marriage, which actually... It's interesting you say that because one review also thought I was homophobic. But I think a, and a, quite a few other reviewers thought I was pro-gay marriage. But I think the point is getting that routine out. To, I use, I'd, I'd rather use a routine to get out a viewpoint than just saying, hey, guys, that's out of order. 
shouldn't be cheering rather than get, I'd rather get the joke out. And that's my point. Sure. I just felt, I mean, I, I totally see where you're coming from. I'm not suggesting that what you should have done is stop yeah. the show and say, I disagree with you. I just felt like someone with your comic ability yeah. could have got more. And maybe it was a, an edit on the DVD. The, the, uh, you, you know, maybe there, maybe there was more stuff that you did, but I just thought that was interesting because you, I really made me as a as a watcher of it. I don't, I didn't think, I didn't think fucking Ellie's homophobic. Yeah. I thought, oh, oh, now I don't know how he actually feels about it because because the material you did. It's a very specific point which people in the room haven't necessarily seen. But I I think, uh, do you feel that you expressed to an audience to your satisfaction? your actual feelings about it or are your actual feelings about it not important in I the pursuit of getting a laugh my feelings are important about it but also i can't control their feelings on it so if they are homophobic or racist or sexist i think that's their views i'm not going to change that but do you think comedy can ever change that you know not not <laughs> as a result of one joke but maybe as a kind of a, a, a wave I, of i think it can maybe change people's mindsets on that evening but i don't think it will if for me to go out and say racism is wrong i don't think someone's going to go off and think racism is wrong if i'm going to stand there and say homophobia is wrong if we stay on this point and say look you know this is wrong why are you saying that it doesn't feel natural and then me doing this whole bit and fucking that guy up and destroying him and then ridicule and then going into the bit about shireen Diwani being gay and this whole thing and then doing the gay arranged marriage stuff because there hasn't been any gay arranged marriages as such, but there's been a lot of straight, say, gay marriages in the, from English people. And then those are the bits I went into. But I thought those were the points that were quite clear that I was pro-gay marriage and okay. anti-homophobia. But for then me to then think this is going to change their viewpoint, I think those people in that audience probably still went away and were homophobic. And... There, it's. I think for me to then judge some, I, I'd appreciate if someone was upfront with me and said, "Look, I am actually a little bit racist." I, in 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 an actual way, when I was growing up, when people were quite upfront with their racism, it was sometimes easier to deal with because you knew where you stood with the people. Now it's such, such an undercurrent that we're not allowed to say certain. Th- we're just not allowed to say things. People are scared to say it, so they won't come out and say it if they are extreme right right wing or they don't like gay people they don't like Asian people or black they won't even say it anymore so it becomes this whole thing where it's an undercurrent and and so what if they are we're going to get people that always are this is always going to be the case but we need to know if, if, you're not, if that's not your viewpoint then it's fair enough but if that's their viewpoint how am I going to change that I'm a comedian if I'm a politician I might have more power which I'm thinking about doing next. But <laughs> Do you feel powerful? Thank you. That was, I appreciate the answer. Do you feel powerful on stage as a performer? I feel, I feel powerful, and I probably have a, a point where I can address these issues and, and tackle them, but can I change their ultimate viewpoint on it? Can a joke actually do that? Can a routine do that? If they came and saw me for two hours and they were sexist, homophobic, and racist... Would they leave being pro-gay marriage, non-racist, <laughs> and inclusive for all sexes? I doubt it. Okay. They're going to probably walk out and question themselves a little bit more, but I don't think it will change them. I, I'm not sure if, as a comic, I can do that, but I can try and help change their viewpoints in certain areas. And I remember doing Jonglers back 15 years ago, and a guy came up to me, Hey, mate, you're funny, mate. You're funny. You're really funny for a packy. You know, anything... He's actually... 
doesn't realise he's actually being racist. But he thinks he's being non-racist now because he stood there. And it's probably the first time he's heard an Indian person talk to an audience for that long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I used to get that growing up. You're Paul, you're right, mate. You're not like the others. Like, and I was thinking, who are these others? You know? And he think, you think, because I'd relate to everyone at school, black people, white, all the people. I'd be friends with everyone, but it was quite segregated. There was groups of white friends. There was groups, of, and they would all be in different groups. But I'd be the kind of guy that would talk to all of them. And I'd say that transcended into my comedy. But I could never then go to the Indian group and say, let's go and mix with the white group and let's all be friends and run around with roses on our hair. You know, this ain't last <laughs> like, like white people do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, hopefully I'm trying to change that. Obviously, a DVD is a cut-down version. If you came and saw me tackle people head-on with these routines, would it change people at the same way? I have a power with an audience that may be slightly more right-wing. And I'd say all characters... Say you go and see Al Murray, the pub landlord. He's going to go out there with these extreme viewpoints. Are these audiences laughing at the irony behind the character? Sure. And do they even know it's a character? I'm not a character. So are they seeing me as a real person? And, you know, I'm, and at the same time, I'm parodying this shit and then trying to get a laugh out of it and then trying to break down that slight prejudice involved. And, you know, when, when, when I started stand-up 18, 18 years ago, there were, there were a handful of Asian acts, even black acts. Mm-hmm. So it was a different time. And then bringing that kind of stuff up was quite contentious. And, and now it's seen as, I'd say we live in slightly, a slightly more racially di- tense time now, almost than we did then. I mean, look at, the, look at this climate we're in now. With, mm-hmm. I've got a cousin that's stuck in Scotland because she couldn't fly back from America she was in Brussels because they're not letting people and she's a citizen of America and she wasn't even allowed so mm. she, and she wants to come to my house on Wednesday and stay there and this is fucking up my social life because she wants to come and <laughs> she said inadvertently Trump is fucking up my life here <laughs> I don't need relatives coming to stay with me it's my worst nightmare it's come true we must we must wrap up shortly thank you already yeah yeah the last thing I wanted to, to get into was to what extent you feel like an insider within the comedy circuit? You mentioned before about kind of like the unicorns, yeah. those kind of gags. And it does feel like you're plowing a different furrow to a lot of the rest of the mainstream circuit. Do, do you feel that? I don't know. what I mean, material-wise or... Material-wise, in terms of your career, I'm, just, I'm sort of interested in, like, personally speaking yeah. as well, whether you feel kind of part of a particular gang of comics you know there's you can sort of identify there are cliques within comedy professionally or or socially i don't think i'm part of that clique to be honest i'm slightly more of an outsider um i kind of developed this career i I took a non-conventional route i didn't come up through the tv panel shows i've done a couple of bits and pieces but it's like doing these things online making sketch comedy online um, you know, like Snapchat, I got on to straight away, all that kind of stuff, and making these little, little viral things, and just making stuff up and putting up on the internet is what probably turned my two, three hundred seat venues into four thousand seat venues. Um, and even I'd say if I did it the other route and I did the panel shows, and I, it might not even happen. So it's quite interesting. You've either got to be on TV all the time, or I mean, I've been on such. Such little amount of TV airtime that there's no way I'd sell these amount of tickets, and a lot of it is word of mouth. A lot of the stuff I do say on stage and tackle is stuff that probably isn't discussed by a lot of comics, 
uh, in a way I do. And hopefully I'm trying to change the perception of that audience, but, you know, that's not in my control a lot of times we just discussed, but that is what I'm trying to get out. And a lot of the audiences that come and see me probably don't see a comic like me. Hopefully I'm trying to be a different type of comic and I've been doing it long enough to hopefully have that type of voice. I don't know if that answered the question. Cause yeah, absolutely. Sounds a bit shit of an answer, but... How's it going? Any questions? Anyone from here? There's one over there. Uh, if you ask the question, I'll just repeat it for the sake of the recording. Was Taskmaster as much fun to film uh, as, it, as it appeared to be? You could have asked me any question. <laughs> Anything. <laughs> yeah, Taskmaster is an interesting one because it was... Um, can turn the lights off now. I don't want to see their faces. <laughs> Taskmaster was... <laughs> was an interesting one because we couldn't fall back on material it was purely persona driven and and it was really being the real you which is why a lot of comics actually didn't enjoy you know some of the comics didn't enjoy doing it because it was just you being you and a lot of people I say didn't really know the real me especially amongst comics and stuff and my say stage persona is a lot more bang bang as you say out there I said the man you're talking to now is slightly different to the man you see on stage and um, and that was the real kind of me I'd say that is the real me and this is the real me I'd say more and I want to be as I'm getting more to that point now as a stand up to be more natural and honest on stage but at the same time I'm trying to throw out a performance yeah, because when you're in a room which holds four thousand people, you can't have this kind of conversation. Sure, you've kind of got to throw it out there, so it's got to be quite punchline heavy. So, so that's I mean that's a really difficult dynamic to get your head around, isn't it? You yeah. need to be less big, but you've still got there's still a job to do. There's still a job to do, and it's the trick of making four thousand people feel like they're sitting in a room of a hundred people. How do you do that? What is the what 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 it's, what are the things like? Can you think of a particular thing you've learned about how to? how to do that more effectively it's kind of bringing them in so i i don't walk up and down like like i did the stage you know 15 years ago and it's kind of creating that intimacy and holding those silences a lot of comics are afraid to hold silences in a room that big and just taking time and pauses and then hitting out there because if if you're confident in your punchlines i think you should do that and, and try and bring them in a lot more and i think it's bringing audiences in to your world is when you get you is, when they're in your world that we were going back to the coughing you can get away with anything i'd say a lot more than you can sometimes you go out there and they don't like you and they're just relying on the jokes mm-hmm. and you just do a joke they laugh and you know they're not really liking you as a person yeah, there's that phrase you're only as good as your last joke, it's your last this, joke. i definitely know some things have been like that yeah and now you're more persona driven they'll listen to you and stay with you for the next joke whereas you know when we were doing the club say we're doing the club circuit 15 years ago and their stags hens birthday but they don't give a shit about you they're here to watch comedy you've got their four acts on the bill they're here to watch comedy and they're here to sit there and laugh they don't give a shit about your name you're the next you're the second you're the third comedian whereas when they come and see you as an act they're here to spend time in Stuart goldsmith's company they're not here to see two people on stage act one act two Sure. You know, they're here to see pe- and come into that world. So the whole point is bringing them into your world. And that's what you've got to kind of get out there when you're in a bigger room is they're here to spend time with you. Just going back to Taskmaster, I really noticed, I've only seen the first episode of that series, of Series 3. And uh, 
I noticed when it, it's because I didn't see you in the same sort of I'm, I'm more used to seeing the other acts that were on that show with you in the more usual kind of panel game they've gone that more route of coming up through panel games and it was really interesting there's a couple of times when Greg or Alex said things or kind of referred to the screen all four of the other acts on the show Sarah and Rob and Dave and Al would be doing big, big performance of like, whoa, like that. And you'd be sort of sat in the middle going, like that. And it was, I wondered to what extent that was, uh, that was a deliberate choice or because you must be less accustomed than they are to working with other comics on TV at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I got on with all those guys really well, but I'd say I didn't, um, I've, I've, you know, those guys are quite regular on these TV panel shows. Yeah, exactly. And these things. And I would laugh but I wouldn't throw my arms around and kick about laughing. You know, I didn't play to the cameras as much, but when it came to my turn, I then say hopefully sure. something that was, and wait my turn. I'm not the kind of, if me and you were on Mock the Week, hey, Stu, I'm not the kind of guy that's going to try and jump on someone's bit or sure. jump over their line, which is that competitive world that you're in on those things. As you know, you've, you've done Mock, haven't you? I've not done Mock the Week, no. So I didn't mean to bring that up. But... <laughs> <laughs> You know, like say you hear about stories that these guys you know, are doing cats. Yeah, I've heard those stories, absolutely. Yeah. cats, and you jump in and you get, jump on people's lines, or oh, you, people, it's a bit of a desperation there. Sure. And when you're on stage, it's all about you, and you're not on with someone trying to jump in on, jump on someone's line, or tread on someone's toes to get the next laugh. So I was quite confident in myself to wait that turn. I think that's, that might be one of the reasons you stand out. You, you stood out particularly on Taskmaster, and I said that a lot of people who requested you to be on this show, a lot of people said, I'm killing it on Taskmaster, and I wonder if that's to do with the fact you were inadvertently taking a different angle on it. You know, it's, that was one of the attractive I, qualities. I think it was just the more natural self of who I am. I didn't, you know, jump out there and think, you know, this is... Otherwise, I could have been more stand-up persona-wise and gone bang, you know, like, I think that would have been so unnatural in that environment that, say, Greg or Alex would have picked up on that. And it's not me. And I, I'm trying to be as natural as I can be. Uh, and people like that. That's the thing, as you said, I, th- I heard you say, I'm quite divisive. <laughs> so I think now I've come to a point in my career and I'm quite happy with it. People either love me or hate me. Um, I didn't. I used to be sometimes. He's all right. Yeah, he's, yeah he's watching. I don't want to be the act that yeah, he's all right because mm. people don't buy tickets for the he's all right kind of act anymore. They either love you or they hate you, and I want to people. I want the excitement. They want to come in as a buzz in a room, and they want to feel excited. And I kind of do feel, as I said, that I feel honoured that they have come out to see me. This is they're giving you an evening here. You know, they've taken babysitters and they've pay, well, not my audience. They normally bring the babies with them. <laughs> They're actually a lot of <laughs> crowd. <laughs> I'd say Asian audiences a lot of the time do bring their kids because they don't know that a stand-up thing isn't about it's an yeah, adult thing. Right. Okay, so yeah. I'll have little babies in the audience and and I do perform to babies. <laughs> in the um, crowd. We may have time for one more question before we wrap up. Uh, yeah, where sort of where have you lived geographically? I mean, you did say Wilson Green, didn't you? Well, let's not give my address away on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but he's asking. Go on, to, yeah. But basically, what he's, I think is what he's saying is my upbringing, where I grew up, like Northwest London. I talk about it in the DVD. I grew up in Edgware, and I was born in London in the seventies, um, and it was a different time. And I, if you want to see that material, I've got. I do cover that in my "What's Happening, White People" and "PC's World," my second DVD, which are available on Amazon.com. 
or, or indeed free on YouTube, <laughs> <laughs> which I will get will get deleted. Some bastard uploaded yeah. them on YouTube, but you know I try and talk about that because it was it's such a diverse. London is so diverse, even the rest of the... It's so diverse now, but in the 70s, I'd say the early 80s, it was such... You know, we, Indians were almost... Indians and black people, there weren't many other immigrants at the time. So although I was born in London, that wasn't what was seen. I would just see a fucking pack of the geese, you know what I mean? That was, it was a tough time growing up. And I'd kind of have to laugh about it when I got home. I'd have to try and balance out the perspective of, I'm getting this abuse, this is the stuff I'm growing up with, even when I started doing stand-up, I thought this would change. But I'd get racist heckles. I, I, got, I remember I got called a packy on stage there, uh, Lee's Jonglers, and uh, you know the girl. I'd have to deal with this in the audience, and because I, I, I got heckled and I'd rip her apart. And then sometimes that's the only then the next thing that an audience member can say to you. Sometimes not all audience members, but sometimes in the clubs you are going to get people. You're in. In a room, you're bound to get people that are racist. You're bound to get people that say and homophobic. The fact that you were saying at the Apollo, there were 4,000 people in that room and not one person said they're homophobic, is impossible. It's physically impossible for them not to be racist, sexist, or homophobic. Sure. By the statistic of how many people are like that. And it's impossible. But then for me to, you know, that night, I ripped her apart. She got kicked out. And nowadays, the audiences do turn on those members of audience. They don't tend to accept it even if there are people on their side. And by the nature of the gig I am, or the act I am, and I go and do a show, there are probably going to be more people on my side or not racist. So um, I'm not sure that answered the question. I went off on a tangent there a little bit. <laughs> Thank you. We must, we must wrap up. I have one final very quick question. Are you happy? <laughs> I was very happy before I did this podcast. No, um, I was happy about an hour and a half ago. You know, uh, I'm quite happy in where, where things are at the moment in my career, and uh, I'm in a I'm in a privileged position to be playing to to my audience and and even to a crowd. I mean, to be making a living out of stand up when I was listening to Sam Kinison tapes and George Carlin tapes. You know, when I was 12 years old, I thought, you know, can I be one of these people? You didn't think that would happen. So for that to actually be a real thing, for me to be playing big arenas like this tonight, <laughs> this is my dream come true, bruv. <laughs> I've made it. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Mr. Paul Chowdhury. <laughs> So thank you to Paul. That was Paul Chowdhury. You can check him out online. You can go and see him live. You can see numerous clips of him online. Both of his shows are on YouTube. But equally, you can pay for a DVD if you would like to support him in that way. Um, and I do I do recommend that. I can't. I, was, I left in that little joke at the end about me. Um, you know, when I said, uh, you know, you can also get them online. You can get them online. But it's kind of nicer to pay the artists that you listen to if you're able to do that. Coming up next week... Episode 200. I will not have had a couple of glasses of wine during the interview, nor indeed the post-amble. Um, and uh, I'm very excited about it. I'm nervous about it. I've had three anxiety dreams about it. I'll tell you all about those after the episode. I hope it goes well. I hope it happens. It's been rescheduled once. There's no reason to suggest it won't happen. I'm very much hoping that the next time I talk to you, I'll be bringing you someone really worth listening to. 
That's all from the episode. Comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour for all of your tour information. You can donate at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate. Follow me at comcompod. Email me info at comedianscomedian.com. And if you are a cool guy and you don't mind me replying to you with a brevity that your long email does not deserve, um, in the sense of it deserves far more, then please put PS, I'm a cool guy. That really helps me when people are cool guys. Thanks, guys. That's all from me. Enjoy your week. I'll be back with episode 200. I can't believe it. Five years. My God. Stick around for the post-amble. If not, I'll speak to you soon. <laughs> so this is necessarily going to be a brief post-amble. It genuinely is. I'm looking at my clock. It's What it is is 20 to 1 in the morning. I didn't make that clear earlier on when I was... Uh, revealing that I'm slightly in my cups but I am it's 20 to 1 in the morning I've had such a busy weekend I've been at Glasgow stand uh, I've been writing I've been administrating I've been away from the boy for eight days so I've been trying in all of the gaps when I've not been performing or traveling to do as much admin and research and all the other stuff I've got to do as possible so that tomorrow I can fly home and spend time with my family and uh, hang out with the boy and his mother and have a wonderful time and not be checking my phone hey on the subject of checking your phone, I chatted to my mate Mark Duckenfield recently, lovely Dublin friend of mine, um, and uh, I saw him today here in, uh, in Dublin before doing my lovely What is a Whelan's gig, and, um, and he has very successfully managed to activate a lot of the Tim Ferriss four-hour workweek stuff. Now, some of you will be very conversant with that, others will not. It sort of seems, if you, if you don't know it, it's like a really good... Uh, strategy for converting your income into something that you earn while you sleep. You do it. You you work smart, not hard. I, look, 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 there's no way I can boil it all down. You can check out Tim Ferriss if you like. Lots of people who've been on this show are, are fans of his. Um, but the the essence of it is to work smarter rather than harder. And he does a very clever thing, my friend Mark, which is pure Ferris, he says, where he doesn't let himself look at any emails before 11 o'clock in the morning. Between 9 and 11 every morning, he just writes plans, things, things that are on his mind, not necessarily creative writing, strategizing, stuff like that. That's very exciting, and I'd like to put some of that into my life. But he, Mark, has a, a routine, I have no routine, nothing. Here I am at one o'clock in the morning, on a, or 20, quarter to one in the morning, on a Monday morning, in a bar, in a, I'm not in a bar, I'm in a hotel, but a hotel under a bar, um, which you will know if you're a Dubliner, um, underneath coppers. Imagine that if you can. I mean, the room's absolutely nice and there's no sound bleed, but it's terrifying. Um, and uh, where's, the, where's the routine? There's no routine. So I'm going to try very hard to get some of these Tim Ferriss principles and insert them into my life in such a way that they make sense for someone with no routine. So that's, that's one of my... That's a, a challenge. New year, new challenge, he said. Not, not that new a year. Um, the, the flight to Melbourne is fast approaching. That is one of the other things very much on my mind and the mind of the mother of the Boutros, we're going to take this little guy on a 20-something-hour flight via Doha, I believe, to get to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And it's either going to be completely fine or a fun nightmare or a nightmare, or it's going to have supposed to have been fine and I'm going to make it difficult by worrying about it. I'm very committed <laughs> no i'm not committed i would like to be more committed i'm i'm very much of the belief that 
I can just, we can just turn up and do it, right? We just turn up and do it. We get on a plane, we hang out with the boy, and we get off the plane, right? At some point he sleeps. He's got to sleep at some point, right? Hopefully when he sleeps, I sleep rather than doing my, my, what I imagine will be my regular thing of going, great, he's asleep. Now I can watch a film I don't care about and stay awake more. God, I think it'll be okay. I think it'll be okay. I fervently hope it'll be okay. I'm so looking forward to seeing that little doofus. Um... I've been away touring, working hard, entertaining you guys. Thank you so much for everyone that's come to the the tour thus far. Plenty more dates to come. Very, very enjoyable. Very exciting. Really exciting to be to be doing a new thing. You know, to not just be. Um, I don't mean just bashing the circuit, but I tell you what, doing doing Glasgow this weekend, doing the Glasgow stand this weekend, and having in mind the fact that I'm going to turn up. Do as well as I can at the gig. Like, I was going to say, turn up, smash the gig. No, no one confidently turns up and smashes anything, let alone the Glasgow stand. And I would not have that hubris. But do you know what I mean? The plan being, right, greatest hits, brackets, not including anything that's in the tour show, so that I can then do as well as I can and then exit fly the crowd, try and get them to come to the tour show and be able to say it's all new, different stuff. Really exciting to be having done a bunch of tour shows to be back doing like a circuit weekend, you know, brilliant, brilliant Glasgow stand, lovely bit of a circuit, but not just not simply, let's say not simply doing the circuit, but doing it with a view to something else. And I, I have said, I think three times today to different people, having turned up in Dublin and seen old friends of one sort or another comics and so forth and, and regular folk as well. I think I've said this two or three times. Where I'm at at the moment is so exciting because I'm not simply doing the work. I'm traveling, hopefully, you know, in the sense of that, that phrase, it's better to travel, hopefully, than to arrive. I'm traveling. That's a phrase, right? Maybe it's not such a popular phrase in Dublin. No one seemed to recognize it, but I'm traveling, hopefully. And I've worked out that that's what I need to do. That's what makes me happy. Arriving is, you know, that's a whole other chapter. It's great to arrive. But then as soon as you arrive, you just got to travel somewhere else. And hopefully it's hopefully. So at the moment, I'm doing some really enjoyable traveling, hopefully. And one of the ways in which you can stop yourself ossifying on the circuit is to always be turning over new material. Of course, that will stop you becoming hard and bitter. And also to feel like it's going towards something else. So doing a gig and trying to get something from it, whether that's new material, whether it's wedging in a bit of strong enough new material, let's not be rude. Um, let's not be rude to the, 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 you know, let's respect the show that we're doing and the people who've paid, but whether it's pushing yourself to, to write that day so that you get something sharp enough, you know, to, to hone something that day so that something is sharp enough to do at that gig or whether it's, working on your audience going yes these people i'm going to try and hang on to them rather than just fade into the night like another joe comedian that they um that they don't never going to see again or or whether it's just getting up in the morning and doing a run which i did for like 12 minutes it was pathetic it wasn't a run run i was trying to do 15 it was a big hill i got all tired I hate myself. Anyway, anyway, that's that's a, that's a, that's another and i know you've all listened to an hour you know my feelings about running i know i know but I'm not getting any younger. That's how it works. That's how they get you. So whatever it is, I've really been enjoying whilst being on tour, trying to push myself to get as much out of it as possible so that, and this is the fantasy, so that as soon as I get home tomorrow or later today even, I can sort of, what I've got in mind is like, I'm going to sort of slob around with the family. 
the boy does not respond well to me slobbing around. Tasks need to be achieved. Things need to be done. Nappies need to be changed. The child needs to be engaged mentally. Spoken to, sung to, cradled, dandled, and indeed safely protected and backed up. Uh, You know, wicket kept as he walks up the stairs, climbs up the stairs. So uh, there's not going to be... I've sort of got this idyllic idea of like, I get home and I relax in the bosom of my family. What it really means, of course, is I get home and then the real work starts. But um, I can't wait. That'll do me for now. Thank you for listening. Thanks for accompanying me as I uh, as I do the next bit of this. It's been a really fun period of being away. I've missed the guy like crazy. I've missed his mum like crazy. And I can't wait to go home and be back in the bosom of my family for, well... Four days, if you don't count the other tour dates that I'm doing, because at least I get to go back home after them. Can't complain about that. I'll see you out there on the road. Speak to you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.